There's a whole lot of talk these days about people who are deconstructing their faith. Deconstructing. You, you may not be aware of this, but it's quite a topic uh, in the Twitterverse. It's uh, quite a topic in the church universal where people are, what they say, deconstructing their faith. There are increasingly uh, large numbers, masses that are leaving the organized, established church in America. Um, there's a lot of studies about that by Barna Group and others that talk about those that have no faith that once did, that those that are considered nuns, meaning they don't identify with any faith any longer. And I'm going to surprise you by telling you I'm not sure, but I don't think that's all a bad thing. Now, I'm not talking about the deconstructionism um, that people enter into to deconstruct the construct of truth. I'm not talking about relativism uh, where everybody gets to determine their own version of the truth and that's valid. And I'm not talking that. I'm talking about those who are sorting through and examining their own beliefs and discarding the ones that just don't hold up and retaining those things that are rock steady, things that you can build your life on or rather things that will build life into you. Um, I think there are many that these days that are assessing what their Christianity has been all about and recognizing there are many trappings that have not really come from God's word, but rather they become traditions and enculturated into them. Missiologists, those that are missionaries, go through this process of deculturalization over and over again, of making sure that the seed, the kernel of the gospel, is not covered by a, by a coating, a a. a, a, a an outward coat that would keep it from having root and growth in a new culture. And I think that we're in that kind of season ourselves where we are deculturating, where we are shedding some of the things that are not necessary to the gospel. I think a lot of people sense that they don't want to lose their faith, they just want to understand the faith they grew up in and what it really means. And they wanna let go of stuff that's not true. They actually want a stronger faith, not no faith. They actually want more of Jesus, not less. Now, when you take this phenomenon that we are finding ourselves in the American church, the Western church, and you couple that with all the shaking that's going on by the Lord's hand, um, it seems, it seems that a reformation may be underway. A true seismic shift in the way the Spirit of God is doing things, a kairos moment, a threshold into a new place of rock-solid belief in Him, but a refusal to be entrapped by the culture of men. God is 
addressing our idolatry. He is pulling down the high places of our human futility. And he is leveling the cultural slums we've propped up and called them fortresses of power and influence. He's getting at the heart of the matter in his people. And in such times, we need to know what it is that we actually believe and why we believe it. That's called orthodoxy. And our orthodoxy must be rooted in his word. And we also need to know why we do what we do. And that's called orthopraxy, the practice of our beliefs. And our orthopraxy must be rooted in his ways. It's why I keep mentioning to us over and over again in the last number of months the words that Jesus spoke to get us back to the basics of what he commanded that will shape us into the disciples he's called us to be. He's called us to obey the commanding words of loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself. I know that we say that so often that we just kind of think we've figured that one out. But church, if we, if we just focused on that for the next 12 months and really dug deep in what it meant and actually applied ourselves to obeying it, we would radically change every environment that we're in part of. Ourselves, our home, our marriage, our children, our neighborhoods, our workplace, our schools, they would change if we really did what Jesus said in loving him with everything in us and loving others as ourselves. It would change. We also know the communion words that Jesus spoke, that we are to abide in him and he in us. And he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's pretty all-encompassing. There's nothing we can do that it merits, merits our attention, our life, our resources. If we do it apart from him, it amounts to nothing. Communing with him, abiding with him. Again, if we applied ourselves to that, it would change everything. And the command, excuse me, the, the commissioning words, the commissioning words to go. And as we're going, make disciples of all those that are in our path. <laughs> Baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Now, Building our lives around these words will not only revitalize our beliefs, they will distinguish and clarify our practice. They will refine us and get us back on point. They will get us back in the game in a way that Jesus is already asking us to be at. He's already there. He's waiting for us to show up. His spirit is already at work doing tremendous things on the outside of this place, on the outside of every church in this country. And the question is, will we meet him there or will we cower in a building expecting the world to change the way we think they should when we've not been willing to be the salt and light out there that would change them? Now, last week we looked at one of these practices of our orthopraxy that is very important, the, the practice of baptism, that Jesus commanded that we are to make disciples and baptize them, that we ourselves are to follow 
in his footsteps in baptism. And, and as such, we are signifying our union with him. Not only the life that we want to have in him, but also the death that he had. The fellowship of his suffering. We are identifying with him, being crucified with him. It is no longer we who live. It is Christ who lives in us. And we are identifying with his burial and with his resurrection to newness of life. And this week, we're going to look at the second practice that is the core part of our orthopraxy, what we practice based off of what we believe. And that, of course, is the Lord's Supper. We're not only going to look at it, we're going to participate in it. Now, for some, baptism and the Lord's Supper, they're called ordinances, things that we're to adhere to. I, I don't know that I really care for that term. A lot of other Christians, they call, it, they call them sacraments, which I think is, is better. It's actually referred to the Latin term sacramentum, which uh, is where sacrament comes from. But the Greek word that got translated into the Latin Bible for sacramentum is actually a more powerful word in my estimation. It's mysterion. Mysterion. Yeah, you're right. It means mystery. Mysterion. And I like that a whole lot more when describing what would happen last Sunday in that water back there. And what happens here as we gather at this table. The early church applied this term mysterion to the practice of baptism and the Lord's table, communion. And they believed them to reveal mysteries of God's divine grace right here in this place. By the fifth century, Augustine had described these sacraments, these mysteries, as outward and visible signs of an inward and invisible grace. I love that. Outward and visible signs of an inward and invisible grace. And so the church, when it has been at its best, has held to these two mysteries. And they have seen them as visible signs that point to an invisible reality. As Greg Allison said, a reality that was included in and caused by the signs themselves. Now, here's what I'm advocating for us as a church community. As a community of Jesus followers in this postmodern, post-Christian world that we live in. Where everything is being shaken and purged and pruned. While some are deconstructing, we're all called to be faithful. What I'm advocating for is that we don't reduce or diminish or try to explain away the mysteries of God. That we don't try to diminish them to points we can handle. It reminds me of this little baby pool that we have in my backyard. It's a, it's a little plastic pool that's, oh, I don't know, about a foot deep. And it takes me, oh, about 15 minutes to fill up with my garden hose. And my grandkids, when it's hot, love to be in that pool. But that's manageable. A lot of Christians find themselves sitting in a baby pool, 
playing around in the water as if they have fully explored all the great mysteries of God. Instead, we stand on the seashore, outlooking the ocean, and seeing water as far as the eye can see. We're scared to wade into that water because we can't control it. It will control us. But these mysteries that God has called us into, they're not a baby pool. They're an ocean that is far and wide. Let's not shrink it down so we can handle it. Let's instead marvel at all its beauty and glory and go with the flow. Let's look at how Paul describes and invites us into this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup and after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Such rich words and ascending ideas to describe this mystery. It's not a baby pool. It's a massive ocean of mystery and grace. But the first thing that we better see is something that we're oftentimes likely to skip over. And that is that Jesus gave thanks. That seems like the simplest thing on earth, but maybe that's the point. Jesus always gave thanks. He modeled something for us. Before he fed 5,000 with just five loaves and two fishes, he gave thanks. And he did it again as he was about to feed 4,000 later on. And while standing at the tomb of Lazarus about to raise him from the dead, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he gave thanks to his father for hearing his prayer. And whilst traveling with a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus, they asked him to dinner. And what was the first thing he did? He gave thanks. And now, on this night that he was to be betrayed, he's giving thanks again. Enemies are plotting against him. His traitor has sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. His other disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. Gethsemane and Golgotha are just hours away. But still, Jesus is fully assured that God will be glorified. And so what does he do? He gives thanks. He wasn't just blessing the food. He was giving thanks to his Father in heaven. And thereby following his own word through the Apostle Paul that we should give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. It's because of this thanksgiving that the Lord's Supper is commonly called the Eucharist, which is a term based on the Greek word for giving thanks. It's where it comes from. 
But the mystery of this meal moves way beyond thanksgiving into a charge for us to remember. And it's more than just us recalling the events that took place. Michael Horton explains that remembrance has a deeper meaning in Jewish thought. He writes this, in our Western Greek intellectual heritage, remembering means recollecting, recalling to mind something that is no longer a present reality. Nothing could be further from a Jewish conception. For example, the Jewish liturgy remembering means participating here and now in certain defining events in the past and also in the future. The Bible has several examples of this where remembrance is an active way of bringing the past and the future into the present. Like when God said to Israel in Numbers 10, On the day of your gladness also, and at your appointed feast, and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. Now, here's what's intriguing to me about this, is that in the midst of God being faithful to his people... He doesn't just give the reminder to them. He gives it to remind himself. Isn't that fascinating? That this remembrance goes both ways. Like when it did with Noah. When he said to him in Genesis 9, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow that we see to this day is a reminder not only to us, but also to him. Wow. Of course, the most powerful Old Testament picture of remembrance is memorialized in the Passover feast itself, where God said to Israel in Exodus 12, this day shall be for you a memorial day, a day of remembering. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Now, every year, the Israelites would join in this feast. The night that Jesus inaugurated his feast was what they were doing in that tradition. And they would gather to remember who or rather whose they are. They would enter into it. It wasn't dry history to be learned. It was dynamic history to be lived. They participated in the Passover. They they engaged in it. They participated in it because they too were recipients of his redemption. At that point, Jesus is now pointing us to what? Another meal the new covenantal meal that he is inaugurating on this night with his disciples. And he invites you and I into that same meal, not only to recall what he's done, but to participate in it. 
N.T. Wright said, it's a meal that not only interprets and explains Jesus's death, it's a meal that is also explaining his entire vocation. As we act this out today, as we participate in it, we are actually portraying his mission in coming to save us. Jesus didn't ask us to remember a sermon or a lecture. He didn't give us a theory or even lay out scriptural text in this moment. He invited us to dinner, to a meal. He invited us to join him at his table, to participate in his vocation. A meal with bread to eat and wine to drink. His body given for us, his blood shed for us that we would thankfully receive from him and remember in such a way that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we might proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you see the mystery? Do you see the glorious, expansive mystery that we have been invited into as we gather at his table? We should come this morning and every time we come to his table with hope and expectation, giving thanks just as he did and remembering what he did but also re-enlisting in what he is doing and participating with him, not with a sermon, but with a meal and looking towards the culmination of his kingdom when he will come again. This time as the bridegroom for a bride to take her to another meal the marriage feast of the Lamb and the presence of God to be experienced forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This morning, we're going to participate. We're not just going to give thanks. We are going to do that. We're not just going to recall all that he's done. We will do that. We're going to participate with all that he's done. And in so doing, we're going to proclaim his death, the benefit of his redemption, all that he accomplished for us. We're going to proclaim it in what we do at the table, eating his meal. It's the most powerful portrayal of his redemption that can be done. Amen. We're going to do it until he comes, and then we get to do it again. I'm going to ask those that are helping us today to come and gather their trays of the bread and wine, and they're going to position here at the front. And then we're going to ask, after Don and I pray for the bread and the cup, that you would come, and you would come with others that you would celebrate with, maybe your family or someone you're sitting next to. We're all family. 
if you belong in Christ, this table is an invitation for you. It's not our church's table. It's the Lord's. And so you come and you receive from him and receive the blessing. And then if you need further ministry, if you would like for one of our elders to pray for you, Brother Curtis and Jamie will be at the far ends, one over here and one over here, and they would delight to stand with you and pray further than the ministry you receive as you participate in the meal. I think I did all at all. Let's do it. Go ahead. I think it's important to remember when we come to communion that this is the source, the, the ongoing power of our relationship with the Lord and also with each other. There's a reason why we do this together. Um, this is a very uh, a Catholic concept but I think that it is something that would be beneficial for us. The sacrament is a holy mystery. I loved that today. It is the most personal and intimate way believers connect with God and with one another. We come to receive Christ, truly himself, not the symbol, not in concept, but in reality. Yes. We feast our souls on all that he has purchased for us on the cross, especially his own enduring fellowship. Mm. Bowing before the living word that circumcises our hearts by dividing the precious from the worthless, claiming his blood sacrifice to cover our sin and remove our shame, rising clean and recommissioned to demonstrate his love, fueling our love and obedience to Christ to make disciples, to rejoice even in tribulation and sufferings because we remember that his hope does not disappoint, yes. and to pray by the Holy Spirit without ceasing. All of those benefits and disciplines of the Christian life are available to us in the moment of communion. Yes. And even when you're communing with the Lord alone in your prayer closet through your own personal disciplines, there is something mysterious about coming to what Robert Grant calls the long table. Yes. His table that has been for every believer. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we always come full and yet empty, full of love and adoration and wonder at what you've done and the why, why you did it. And we come empty because we want to lay all that we are and all that we have on the altar. 
This is one of the easiest places to make room for you, Lord, because you've already made room for us at this table. Yes, you have. So we don't want to miss this opportunity to empty ourselves and receive all that you are. The stuff we know and the stuff we can't know. The wonder of a love that was given for the whole world, past, present, and future. A love that was determined before the world was even created and that has called each of us by name. We receive your word, your body, and ask that it would penetrate us and divide the precious from the worthless. Yes, Lord. And that when you put your finger on those things, like James said, when we check ourselves before you and you point out something that needs to be dismissed, that we would let you cut that away. Hmm. That we would receive your life, your correction, your forgiveness, your hope. Yes, Lord. Lord, likewise, we receive the cup of the new covenant, which means everything has changed. The way it was done before has been done away with. We don't have to slaughter animals this morning to cover our sins with the blood of an innocent For the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has shed his blood for us. Once and for all. And so everything is under the blood. There is power in the blood. There is healing in the blood. There is life in the blood. And we receive those things. We receive those things that are invisible because we want to demonstrate outwardly and visibly the power of God in our lives. And Lord, we ask that you would cleanse us now and let your life that is found in your body and let your forgiveness that is found under the blood be ours now in Jesus' name.